Let me invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. And as you're turning, uh, I will give you a little uh, historical context. You know, people sometimes ask me, how do the pastors pick what books to cover one after another? We, we don't go from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers. And there's a reason why we don't. Uh, there would be no one left in the church, I fear, if we went directly by the, in that order. So one day over lunch, uh, Pastor Greco said to me, he said, our senior pastor, he said, well, I've got a new idea for how we're going to do the evening service. He said, it's kind of an experiment. And that perked my ears up because the word experiment is not a word I've heard, heard come from Fred's lips frequently in the last couple of years, three years. And he said, I think what we're going to do is, is do a book together. And uh, I think it's going to be the book of Haggai. And... Uh, I kind of smiled broadly and started chuckling. And he said, what's wrong? Don't you want to do something with me? I said, brother, that would be just great. I said, but it's the Haggai part that I'm finding interesting. I said, you know, when I was uh, back in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, I made the terrible mistake of asking my new intern, what book of the Bible in the Old Testament would he like us to go through together? And uh, he hadn't been five days on the job, and he immediately said, the book of Haggai. And you know, as it worked out with that dear brother, I always drew the short stick. We did that same thing of doing it together. And I got all of the heavy judgment passages. And he got all of the happy texts. And so you say the word Haggai and I just start chuckling because I remember standing up in, in front of the congregation for the 10th or the 12th time saying, well, here we are gathered around a nice warm passage on judgment once again. My name is not uh, Jason Gregory, and I don't have the happy text. <laughs> and I did relate to Fred. I said, but you know, if we're going to do Haggai, then there's one text I have to have. I got a basketball sermon. He said, a what? I said, a basketball sermon. You know, there's a wonderful text in Haggai uh, that appeared just in the providence of God right as the final championship of College basketball was occurring, and, and the entire state of Tennessee was electrified over the fact that Memphis was going to be in the final, you know, the final game. And the text in Haggai is, and Memphis shall bury them. <laughs> Fred looked at me strangely, said, okay, we'll do Nehemiah. And so to Nehemiah we come. This is a great book of the Old Testament. And uh, it's one that begins with a prayer, which is an interesting way to begin a book. Uh, let's uh, gather around the uh, first 11 verses. That is all of the first chapter of Nehemiah. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hilkiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with a certain man of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let us pray. O Lord, we do pray that your word might be open to us. We have heard, heard it fall read upon our ears. We ask now that as it is preached, it would fall upon our hearts. By the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Nehemiah falls fast on the heels of Ezra, which comes before. As a matter of fact, in Jewish copies, you will typically see these two books woven together as one whole. And it's not too much to say that to read Nehemiah, you need to first read Ezra and need to grasp its message. You see, the remnant had returned to the land and to Jerusalem. Yes, there were two waves that came before Nehemiah. The backing of Cyrus had... Uh, of Cyrus had been predicted by the prophet Jeremiah. And that prophecy, which had been written down in the word of God and was shown to Cyrus when he came to power, having been written before he himself was inaugurated, was the amazing means that God used to turn the heart of a king. God's hand of blessing had been with them as they restored the altar and began rebuilding the temple. But adversaries were in the land on every hand. Soon Cyrus was dead and and the promises of support from, from the reigning empire were long forgotten. The new king, Artaxerxes, instead forbid the rebuilding of Jerusalem under false political intrigue. And with his support, the surrounding enemies attacked and laid waste to Jerusalem Yet again, her gates were broken and her houses in ruin. Back in Susa, the winter capital of the Persian kings, news of this attack reached Jeremiah. 
The cupbearer to the king, his heart was broken by this tragedy. His resolve was strengthened to cry out to the Lord. And his prayer, which we have recorded here, teaches us something we all need for Christian living. God's covenant faithfulness is the sinner's only hope. His covenant faithfulness is our only hope. Now this text speaks to us in solemn terms, this prayer of Nehemiah. And it begins by teaching us that the Lord is the covenant God. He's not just any deity. He's not just one who's made up in the imagination of men. He is the Lord of heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now that language sounds very majestic. You know, it's almost as majestic as some of the language that you're going to hear on Downton Abbey later tonight. Those those uh, upstairs people, they speak in the most amazing sort of way. And you know, as Americans, the accents, even the downstairs people sound really cool too. There's something of an unusual twang, a strange accent about the language of Nehemiah here, however. He is speaking of the Lord God of Israel, the Lord God of the heavens, he calls him. And this is not traditional biblical language in the exact wording of it for referring to the Lord. This is Babylonian and Persian-influenced verse. And it is implying divine rule and power. And so here we have in the opening of his prayer an interesting fact that confronts us. That one who is going to be used by God and loves the Lord and is going to be courageous for his kingdom is someone who is in a very high place in a foreign dictator's governmental system. He's the cupbearer. He carries the cup. He samples the cup. If someone poisons it, he has the privilege of dying first, so the king won't. And so he has been around this court language and their religious traditions and their religious language, and he is using language which keys us into the fact that the text is very genuine, that it's definitely drawn from the period of this great exile in the Babylonian captivity. So here we have an interesting feature where an inside of history, and if we want to broadly conceive it, general revelation is appropriated by God for use in his special word of salvation to us. He tells us in verse 5, the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with us is the one he's addressing in prayer. And again, in spite of defeat, in spite of exile, in spite of enslavement, in in spite of what is, I think, most kindly referred to as indentured service to the king, Nehemiah, who had every reason to complain on one level, blesses the name of the Lord, blesses and honors his name. 
Here, Nehemiah is an example to us. He's an example of a Christian man who does not let outward circumstances as they wane and wax and the sea rolls up and down affect his trust in God. He trusts God straight through in thick and thin, in ease and in hardship, in safety and in danger. He trusts the Lord rather than having a bitter heart or an angry spirit. And he comforts himself. He reminds himself, even in his opening prayer, of the fact that the Lord is the one who preserves his covenant. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, that is the one to whom he prays, the God who keeps his covenant. You see, Israel had failed to keep the covenant. God had laid down regulations and stipulations. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments that they were required to keep, to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. They also had all of the Mosaic legislation. They had all of that moral legislation, yes, from the Ten Commandments, but also the civil and ceremonial legislation built upon it. And and so there were regulations about how they were to eat and how they were to dress and how they they were to live, what kind of money they should be using. Oh, the economic system and standard, the way that the church was to be structured, the priesthood, the temple, all of these things. And the frank fact of the matter is the sons of Israel didn't keep the covenant with God. They had been unfaithful. But God, Nehemiah knows, is one who keeps his covenant in spite of ourselves. He's the covenant-keeping God. And so that reminds us that we, as we come to him in prayer, we count not upon the sincerity of our repentance. We don't even count on the fervor of our praying we count most fundamentally and most deeply on the solid and sure foundation of the covenant-keeping God. He binds himself by his own name and by his own honor and his own word and his own character to bless us in spite of ourselves. Only by his grace are we ever truly accepted and saved. Now, does that mean we don't need to repent? Absolutely not, but it does mean this. Even our repenting is not as perfect as it should be. And it always has something in it that still needs repenting of. We need to look to Jesus. And we need to look to Him again and again and again. We need to turn away from our sin. And we need to turn away from it again and again and again. As John Owen, following Paul, rightly says, we need to kill it. (laughs) We kill our sin. We live to righteousness. Oh, it... This fact that God is a covenant-keeping God does not diminish our duty. It does not reduce our effort. It's the foundation of it in our Christian lives. The Lord is the one who is the preserver of his covenant and the covenant-keeping God. And then the prayer goes from a focus on God and an emphasis upon him as holy and righteous, and it turns and it looks at self and sees how far short we fall. Nehemiah preaches to us in his sermon. He teaches us here that God's covenant people are bound in sin. 
still. Now, there's an interesting feature and aspect of this in the text, which is a good lesson for us. Nehemiah prayed not as an isolated individual locked in a closet, a marble on a table with nothing else touching. He prayed as a member of the body of Christ. He prayed as one of the sons of Israel. He was very conscious of the fact that he was in a in a Christian family, and he was in a Christian nation, and that uh, they each had responsibilities one to another. There was not just an individual ethic that he was concerned with, but corporate ethics of various sizes. Yes, he was concerned about himself, but he was also concerned about himself and his, his house and his father's house. He was concerned about his family and how they stood before the Lord. And he was concerned about the entire nation of Israel, Israel, the covenant people, that they had sinned and offended the holy and righteous and true God. And he confesses sin on all of these levels. He prays merely as, or prays as God's mere servant. He prays without ceasing over and over and over again. And he prays confessing their sins in all of these dimensions and ways. Let your ear be attentive, he says in verse 6, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. Nehemiah knew that he was guilty, but he looked around his family table and he thought about his family line and he knew that he was from a whole family of sinners. And all of them were in need of salvation. And then he thought about his people. He thought about their bonds and their sweetness together as as a nation and as a people, and, and they had a culture and a language and, and a religion and a society. And they were sinners. They had let God down and rebelled against His covenant. And so He confessed sin both individually and corporately. Now, this is a very radical thing for American evangelical ears. Even, or maybe I might even say, especially for some evangelical reformed ears, we tend to get uppity and very defensive and do not like the idea that we should repent, that we should confess sin on a corporate level. It's just me and my sin. We are very eager uh, to protect ourselves from sin. We'd much rather quietly pray about our sins individually. Maybe sometimes we sing, swing to the opposite extreme. You know, I can get a crowd up to pray about the sins that everybody else has committed who don't come to the meeting. That kind of a corporate way. But Nehemiah here strikes the proper balance. He has a foot in each realm. He's praying about his sins, and he's praying about their sins, both all together, because you see, he is a part of his family he is a part of his nation. He is a part of his people and there are sins which he has been entangled in and that he also needs to confess. 
Both the individual and the corporate count. Now, now there's some complexity here theologically because it's, it's true that the nature of repentance uh, is not ultimately vicarious, uh, that at the end of the day there has to be a personal reference with regard to that sin for there to be a basis and a station or a, uh, from which to be able to confess. But you know, let me, bring, uh, let me bring it down to daily life. You see, we need to pray about our own lust as well as that of our lascivious culture. And if you're lacking any topics to pray about, just just turn on television. It won't be long. You'll see some of them. Uh, We need to pray about our own hatred, the hate that we have in our hearts, as well as the hate that we have as a nation. And even, God forbid, the hate that we have as a church. On these group and holistic levels, we also need to pray. We, too, are bound by the moral law of God. We must love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Nehemiah had more to confess. He and his people had broken the civil law. They had wandered away from Mosaic legislation. They had even broken the ceremonial law. They had turned the worship of God and the life of His temple into something for personal gain in sport. And so God's promised chastisement was indeed delivered. Verse 8 says, or 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Oh, Nehemiah was very well aware that the hand of God's judgment had been upon them. You see, they had been faithless towards the Lord. Faithfulness resulted in blessing in that time as a lesson to us to pursue sanctification in Christ-likeness. But faithlessness had nothing else to expect in that day other than the object lesson for all of us of exile. Oh, I could stop and I could read Leviticus 26 to you. If you've got a little time tonight, read Leviticus 26. Make sure you get down to verses 30, 32, 33. Don't read it right before you go to bed. Or if you do, have a cup of warm milk afterwards because it's a little frightening. God, in chastisement against his people, wielding the sword against his own to teach them the importance of holiness and Christ-likeness in their life. But such condemnation is not all the Lord says because you see in the next breath, Nehemiah says in verse 9, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah shows a faithful, wise exegesis of this passage. He has has language in the Old Testament that's in his lap that portion of it delivered to this point, which promised exile and also promised restoration. And there had been two waves 
of those going back to the land to reestablish Israel and rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to put the city back in order that the people of God might grow and flourish as the Lord had promised in His Word. And the first two firecrackers out of the box were almost duds. Now what he could have done is thrown his hands up. He could have complained to the Lord and said, You know, Lord, we sent two waves of people and it looked like you were blessing and you were going to fulfill your word, but you know, your word's not worth it. Your word's not true. You haven't honored your commandment, your instruction and your prophecy. We went back, but we have not prospered. I'm still stuck in this place and I'm not back. He could have complained against God, but he did not. Rather, he was patient. And he understood that the seriousness of their sin that resulted in 70 years of exile would not be changed. The prophecy would not be fulfilled by just flipping a switch. It would not just be a straight upward line, but rather there would be twists and turns as providence directed and as the Lord was in charge because you see it was much too serious for even a great man like Nehemiah to be in charge of. There had to be just the right mixture of people in the land. There had to be just the right mixture of truth and error of good and evil among the people because you see the remnant was not an end in itself. It was not a triumphalistic event so that they could say that they were back and they were right and they had power and they had been done wrong. Rather, it was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus who was yet to come as the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And the Lord worked that recipe and mixed that dough until it was just right for the coming of His Son. Our only hope, you see, is in God's covenant faithfulness. He preserves the covenant. He is the one who promises the people will come back and he is the one who will make it so. Verse 10 says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. And so on the basis of those sure promises of God's covenant grace, Nehemiah knew what he had to do. He knew that the Lord was weaving all of this together and that great things were in store for the kingdom. And so he knew that on the basis of the covenant of grace, given the hand of providence that he had gotten this news and that he was in the place he was, literally at the right hand of the king, that he must act. And so that is why our chapter ends with the prayer on his lips that he be granted mercy in the sight of the king, for he was the cupbearer to the king. Like Esther before him, Nehemiah knew that he had been placed in that position by God for such a time as this, that he had a role to play in redemptive history, 
And in heartfelt prayer, he gathered the orientation and the courage to face that task that he might give glory to God. Will you? A new year has started and new opportunities for gospel endeavor, new opportunities to serve the Lord and to advance his kingdom, new opportunities to do good and to pray and to love and care. Will you, all around you in God's providence, are an amazing set of gifts and circumstances. You know, I look out over this gathering and there's not a person here in whom I don't see uh, many blessings from God. And, and I can see in those eyes and I know from a pastoral experience that the Lord has blessed you with gifts and with graces and with opportunity for the good of the gospel and for His word forth to go, by, go out in power it's not just that we sit around a campfire and talk about all the great things he's done in the past. The Lord has set another year in front of you that you might do well now, each and every day in 2015. You, you may say, I'm not a cupbearer to the king. But you're a cupbearer to somebody. You have a role and a calling and a life to live to his glory. Will you? By his grace, let us pray. Oh, our Father, we ask that you would help us to blossom in your kingdom and so give you the glory due. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.